Heart takes, not hot takes. This is Everyone is Wrong, a counterintuitive pop culture podcast. I'm your host, Seth Sommerfeld, and welcome to episode one. So without further ado, let me explain the concept of this podcast. The great thing about art is everyone is allowed to love or hate anything. And as the media landscape has shifted over the past few decades, thanks in large part to the internet, things have become more fragmented and niche. Everyone isn't watching the same movies and TV shows. Everyone isn't listening to the same albums, reading the same books, etc. The monoculture is essentially dead. But still, there are many big pop cultural touchstones where criticism seems to be close to universal. The point of this podcast is to try to explore the counter to these universally held pop culture opinions by chatting with people who genuinely believe that everyone is wrong when it comes to a certain movie, album, or other piece of pop culture that's been thrown in the societal trash bin. I'm interested in exploring things that have come closer to being monoculture than niche passions. Sure, there are some indie films that bombed week one at the box office but then became hidden gems or failures that became cult classics like an office space or movies like that. But this isn't a podcast about those. It's about kind of these bigger things that lots of people connect to. It's also not a podcast about ironically liking things. I'm not interested in things that are quote unquote, so bad that they're good. We're not going to be talking about the room or anything like that. There's got to be a general admiration for the art. Um, as part of that, I'm going to try to focus the show on lifting things up that are widely disliked instead of tearing things down that are universally adored, but I'm sure there'll be some episodes of that too. It's easier to take down something high on its perch, uh, and there's probably more fodder for doing that, but at least I'm going to start by trying to avoid that being the main thrust of the show. Uh, probably for starters, I'm going to try and limit no negative podcasts, but then Probably eventually, maybe one out of every four might be a negative instead of a lifting up. Uh, to give everyone is wrong, more topic choices. Some of the episodes, like the one that you're listening to currently, will be based somewhat upon comparison to other things, maybe uh, other works in a certain franchise or a certain director, things of that ilk. Uh, so one might argue that The Dark Knight Rises is actually a superior film to The Dark Knight which most people would think is an absurd opinion, but there's a case to be made probably. Uh, or, you know, if it's a director or something, it could be like maybe someone arguing that Shutter Island is the best Scorsese film, which would be a take. But if it's a heart take and not a hot take, I'm interested in it. Uh, admittedly, it's somewhat subjective what uh, the criteria on each show is going to be, and I grant that. I wouldn't want to do an episode on Weezer's Maldroit, for example, saying that it was a great album, because even though most people, probably the general opinion is that Blue Album and Pinkerton are great, and then everything else is kind of garbage bin, there's enough people that like Green Album and Maldroit, and the albums after that get really uh, societally looked down upon. So if somebody wants to argue that one of the past five Weezer albums are great, all of which you probably don't know the title to, that's more interesting to me. Things like award show recognition could come into play, but within reason. Uh, like there's not going to be an episode on how Crash is actually bad despite winning Best Picture because most people think Crash is a bad Best Picture winner. So it would be actually more engaging if someone wanted to argue, no, it's actually a fantastic movie. So that's the gist of the podcast format-wise. We'll start the episode with a discussion kind of about the widely held opinions of the work citing sources 
then the guest will come and argue five points uh, in favor of the piece of art that they're defending. Uh, I'll generally be sharing my own opinions, but occasionally I'll raise counterpoints to uh, go along with the generally held thoughts of the work so that the guest can respond to the general criticisms of it. Uh, I'll try to make those distinctions clear, but I'll surely screw up occasionally. And basically, that's it. Uh, Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with our first guest after the break. My guest on this maiden voyage is a Chillwave expat, failed former Rudger Hauer podcaster, and cat owner. He's here today to bring balance to the Force by defending the honor of the Star Wars prequels and make the case that the much maligned trilogy is actually superior to the more recent Star Wars trilogy, aka episodes 7 through 9. Everyone is wrong, but Jason Baxter isn't. Thanks for coming on, Jason. Thank you for having me, Seth. I will point out that just off the bat, wasn't one of the most recent Weezer albums also just called Weezer? I mean, there's there's lots of uh, yeah. There's a black. They've done a post Weezer. I mean, because because the original Blue album is actually just, just called Weezer. Weezer. Yeah. And there's also I think a red album, a black album, and a maybe even a white album now going the Beatles oh, territory. Wow. So uh, yeah, there's there's lots of Weezer to discuss, but. Uh, we, that, that's for a different episode. (laughs) Certainly. Uh, but anyway, uh, Jason is, uh, someone who I discuss films with a lot, uh, is a, a noted, uh, Star Wars sequel, uh, liker, and I am one too. Uh, we do not hate those movies and, uh, we kind of want to, uh, give them a fair shot. I know it's not the most, uh wildly off base take but i figured something kind of general for the first episode would be nice that lots of people could connect to because star wars is monoculture in an age when there's not a lot um so anyway the background of the star wars trilogy and or the star wars prequel trilogy and the star wars sequel trilogy i'll focus more on the prequel trilogy because that's what jason is here to talk about uh, the Star Wars prequel trilogy began with the release of The Phantom Menace in 1999. It was subsequently followed by Attack of the Clones in 2002 and Revenge of the Sith in 2005. The trilogy tells the story of how Anakin Skywalker became a Jedi, fell in love, only to turn to the dark side of the Force and become Darth Vader. And now you know where Darth Vader comes from. That's the intent. Uh, the Phantom Menace was probably the, arguably the most hyped movie in film history because fans had been clamoring for more Star Wars since the original trilogy wrapped up with Return of the Jedi in 1983. George Lucas wrote and directed all of the prequel films after having shared writing duties and handing off directing duties for The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. The Phantom Menace was also groundbreaking with its technology, far surpassing prior green slash blue screen heavy films and having films first, uh, main all-CGI character in Jar Jar Binks. It's also worth noting The Phantom Menace is technically an indie film, as George Lucas self-financed the film through merchandising rights deals. And while the very initial reception of The Phantom Menace was more positive, just because maybe a rose-colored glasses thing, uh, people were just stoked to have Star Wars back, 
opinion quickly soured against the movie and subsequently soured the opinion for the further entries in the prequel trilogy. As noted in his Phantom Menace review, Peter Travers, the largely pushover film critic of Rolling Stone, uh, the guy who, if you see a quote line in a trailer that seems silly and over the top, it's probably Peter Travers. Uh, He said of The Phantom Menace, the actors are wallpaper, the jokes are juvenile, there's no romance, and the dialogue lands with the thud of a computer instruction manual. Um, So that's just kind of the general feeling of Mm. The Phantom Menace. But a quick rundown of some of the things that people just hated about The Phantom Menace and subsequently about the whole trilogy. Uh, People did not like that the plot was centered around the Trade Federation. Essentially, it's a movie based around trade disputes and people have a problem uh, when their epic space fantasy is tied into bureaucracy. Uh, Many people took exception with the alien characters being racist stereotypes. Jar Jar Binks with his broken English and clownish mannerisms is perceived as a black stereotype. The Nemoidians of the Trade Federation are thought to be an Asian caricature. And the junk-dealing Watto, who owns Anakin and his mother as slaves, is thought to be a greedy, scheming Jewish stereotype. Uh, Mark Caro of the Chicago Tribune discussed this in his Phantom Menace review, saying, No matter how much detail went into turning clumsy sidekick Jar Jar Binks into an expressive digital creation, he can't overcome Lucas's conception of him as an incomprehensible Amos Sinandi type blubber. He actually sounds more like a prepubescent mushmouth from Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids, who walks with an exaggerated pimp strut. He's not the only ethnic caricature either, as the Trade Federation officials sound like stock Oriental villains. The, the one thing that I will not uh, defend about the prequels is um, the perceived racial insensitivity of some of the characters, right? Um um, it's kind of hard not to talk about, um, right. and I think specifically with the um, uh, oh god, why am I blanking on the Nemoidians? The Nemoidians, um, yeah, uh, that was pretty indefensible. Um, yeah, Jar Jar has such a complicated legacy, um, and I don't know how. Um, well, I mean, they clearly didn't intend for it to be offensive, right? No, I, I here's the um, thing. I think that a lot of George Lucas. I would say it's perfectly acceptable to take offense to all of those characters. And it's also, I think, a little disingenuous to be like, George Lucas definitely wanted to make a bunch of racist stereotypes. Like, right. Yeah. Because if you like, you know, with kind of how he lives his life and spends his money and things like that, uh, it, yeah, and if you know anything about his personal life, you'd be like, right. that guy can't be racist. Um, so, yeah. But uh, he can be racist, but you cannot be racist and be, like, racially ignorant and insensitive. insensitive. Yeah, sure. Um, and I believe that the quote that you cited um, referenced, like, Amos and Andy. Yeah. Um, and that seems very much like uh, a, the kind of thing that George Lucas would be into, mm-hmm. uh, knowing his love of, like, old-time Americana. Right. And... Uh, doing a bit based on that might not seem as uh, immediately offensive to him. Right. But yeah, I can't, I can't defend those things. Um, I, I find Jar Jar uh, amusing. Yeah. I I, I think complicated and problematic. Right. Um, 
I think the Phantom Menace is very dry and even him being bumbling and having some sort of a jester presence helps the film. Oh yeah, totally. A lot. Uh, just Yeah. Cause the rest of it is politics and that sort of wooden acting. Right. But I, I can't, I, yeah, I can't, I don't think he was intended to be a black stereotype, uh, but I don't fault anybody for thinking that. And I do think it's weird that like the, the the quote that I read earlier is someone describing his walk as a pimp walk. And I feel like that's Yeah, I was like, that seems racist. I feel to like me. that's I feel like that's someone that's the reviewer placing racism on like I've decided yeah, they're, this they're is projecting a black a thing and now I'm going to <laughs> make it seem even worse than it is. In general, the trilogy at large is hammered for having subpar acting, uh wooden dialogue in the immortal words of Jake Lloyd, uh Jason. Now this is pod racing. <laughs> There's also criticisms of bad chemistry, especially between Hayden Christensen, who plays Anakin in episodes two and three, and Natalie Portman as Padme. Uh, their love story is key to the trilogy, and a lot of people just didn't like it. Uh, Peter Rainier in New York Magazine, in his Phantom Menace review, said, George Lucas has been quoted as saying, quote, Actors are still the best way to portray people, end quote. But in watching Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, you get the feeling that he wishes it wasn't so, that he could dispense with actors altogether. Being human has never seemed so humdrum, and maybe that was Lucas's intention by making his CGI characters, his droids, globs, and thingamajigs so much more captivating than his people. He's striking a blow for the primacy of special effects over human effects. At this point in his career, he may not know or care about the difference. People, people do not like, people don't like Phantom Menace. Um, that's a general takeaway. Uh, because it was a monoculture event, it soon became a monoculture punching bag. Uh, it became something that talk show hosts or stand-up comedians would choose as an easy target. Uh, one thing that I always uh, got a kick out of, even though I... Uh, like the movies generally uh, was uh, Patton Oswalt's stand-up bit uh, at midnight. I will kill George Lucas with a shovel from his album werewolves and lollipops. Here's a, a little snippet of that. It's a four minute bit, but you get the gist about a little bit in my geekiness is getting in the way of my nerdiness. I'm starting to notice as I grow older, I had this really sad realization. I was thinking the other day about a, uh, a time machine, if I had a time machine, you know, because I'm really into history, like would I go back and witness something, or, like find out who Jack the Ripper was or stop the Kennedy assassination. And the first thing I thought of doing if I actually had a time machine is I would go back to around 1993 or 94 and kill George Lucas with a shovel. That was the first thing that came to my mind and stop him from making the prequels. So, uh, as you can tell, uh, even the crowd is just totally on board with the thought of murdering George Lucas to prevent the prequels. People do not like these movies. Killing him in the mid-90s, though, would also erase the special editions. Yeah, it's true. There's lots of criticism. That, that, that is a fair point that a lot of the criticism of the prequels is kind of pre-baked by people not liking the special editions, uh, which came out slightly before. And so it pre-suppose maybe George Lucas 
because prior to that george lucas is kind of just thought of as a pure visionary guy who just directed great films and right. everybody likes him probably a near universal approval rating for george lucas up until the special editions and then it goes down a skosh and it just has that crack in the windshield that can grow bigger and bigger exactly just to get uh since those were mainly phantom menace criticisms here's a few quick quotes on episode two and three attack of the clones and revenge of the sith particularly brutal one from stephanie zicherik uh from salon quote star wars episode two attack of the clones could be the worst movie ever made and it would still have the faithful rallying around the lucas franchise against that army of formidable opponents it seems a waste of breath to point out the flaws in movie that really isn't a movie at all truncated sequences that don't string together into a coherent story dialogue that may as well have been cobbled together out of pieces of wood instead of words love scenes shot to look like douche commercials this is a fantasy with no poetry in it wow. douche commercials is a very specific That's very specific yeah. very specific i don't remember the last I, time I, I saw a douche commercial me neither that's uh interesting yeah interesting you, you think they could just go like soap opera which is right a lot more right there but it's not as evocative i i grant i grant uh stephanie that uh and then for revenge of the sith again peter travers normally a pushover on Revenge of the Sith, quote, drink the Kool-Aid, wear the blinders, cover your ears, because that is the only way you can totally enjoy Revenge of the Sith, the final and most futile attempt from skilled producer, clumsy director, and teen-eared writer George Lucas to create a prequel trilogy to match the myth-making spirit of the original Star Wars saga he unleashed 28 years ago. Which is really hard because it's unquestionably the best of the three movies and just, right uh but anyway to counter that bile just just pre-jason coming in to defend roger ebert weirdly is a prequel was a prequel fan uh he did not like attack of the clones he gave that two out of four stars but both phantom menace and revenge of the sith received three and a half out of four star reviews from him uh, of Revenge of the Sith, he concluded his review by saying, George Lucas has achieved what few artists do. He has created and populated a world of his own. His Star Wars movies are among the most influential, both technically and commercially, ever made. And they are fun. If he got bogged down in solemnity and theory in Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, the Force is in a jollier mood this time, and Revenge of the Sith is great entertainment. But uh, particularly notable is his, the lead to his Phantom Menace review, which is uh, one of the more fun film uh, review leads you can find. Quote, if it were the first Star Wars movie, the Phantom Menace would be hailed as a visionary breakthrough. But this is the fourth movie of a famous series, and we think we know the territory. Many earlier views have been blasé, paying lip service to the visuals and wondering why characters aren't better developed. How quickly we've grown accustomed to wonders. I am reminded of the Isaac Asimov story, Nightfall, about a planet where the stars were visible only once in a thousand years. So awesome was the sight that it drove men mad. We can see the stars every night glance up casually at the cosmos and then quickly down again, searching for a Dairy Queen. 
uh, Ebert, a fan of the prequels. And a quick setup of the sequel trilogy, since that's not what Jason is here to defend, but we will be comparing them against. Uh, after George Lucas sold the Star Wars rights to Disney in 2011, the Star Wars sequel trilogy kicked off in 2015 with The Force Awakens, followed by 2017's The Last Jedi and 2019's The Rise of Skywalker. These films focus on Rey, a young Jedi, uh, fighting against a rebuilt empire known as the First Order, partially led by Kylo Ren, a Sith who trained under Luke Skywalker and was the son of Han Solo and Leia Organa. The Force Awakens and Rise of Skywalker were written and directed by J.J. Abrams, and the middle entry was written and helmed by Ryan Johnson. The Force Awakens was widely hailed as a triumphant return to Star Wars magic, with pretty much the lone dissenting voices being uh, kind of the new, at the time, social media, right-leaning, white nerd bro, cretin kind of people who disliked that there was a female lead who gained her power too quickly and that her partner in crime was a black ex-stormtrooper because, as we all know, if a stormtrooper is white on the outside, he is white on the inside. Social media haters played a much bigger role in The Last Jedi's receptions as fans picked apart Ryan Johnson's films for slights they perceived in him inverting some of the traditional Star Wars themes. Kylo Ren's line from the film, Let the Past Die, Kill It If You Have To, seemed to be the driving force behind Johnson's idea. Um, and many fans rejected elements uh, of that, like Luke Skywalker being a grumpy hermit instead of a triumphant hero, uh, Snoke not being the actual big bad guy and kind of going out with a whimper. And then there's the whole MacGuffin subplot of Finn and Rose's detour to the casino world of Cantobite, etc., etc., etc. And then there's The Rise of Skywalker, which is just a complete mess of a film. <laughs> uh <laughs> It's not good. Uh, and uh, it Abrams essentially retconned The Last Jedi. A lot of it brought back the Emperor Palpatine into the story kind of for no good reason. But uh, fans responded to it much more positively uh, in the South Park kind of member berries way. So just a quick comparison of how fans and critics responded to these movies in the prequel trilogy. The Phantom Menace, on, according to Rotten Tomatoes, uh, The Phantom Menace was a 52% positive among critics, 59% among viewers. Attack of the Clones was 65% positive among critics, 56% among viewers. And Revenge of the Sith was 80% positive among critics, 66% positive among viewers. For comparison, the sequel trilogy, The Force Awakens, was 92% positive among critics, 86% positive among viewers. The Last Jedi was 90% positive among critics, 42% positive among viewers. And flipping that, The Rise of Skywalker was 51% positive among critics, 86% positive among viewers, which... Which viewers? <sighs> don't know i don't know who i don't know how literally double the percent of people are like i like the rise of skywalker and did not like the last jedi i i'm that, i'm not I'm, I'm not the i know there's plenty of criticisms to be held against uh the last jedi but the idea that it would be essentially twice as good a film as the rise of skywalker is 
is a lot to handle. Uh, anyway, I think that sets the slate. Uh, thank you, Jason, for chiming in occasionally. And uh, so now, Jason, why is everybody wrong about the Star Wars sequel trilogy actually being better than the Star Wars prequel trilogy? So I've got my five main arguments. Yes. I've ranked them from what I presume to be uh, most controversial to least controversial. Yeah. So I'll probably go in that order. Um, in which case I would start by saying that your mileage may vary, but I think that um, the prequels have better lightsaber battles than anything in the sequel trilogy. All right. So the, the lightsaber battles, the, I think the probably in the fandom menace, the thing that most people agree on is that the lightsaber battle between Darth Maul, Qui-Gon, and Obi-Wan is probably the highlight of the film. Um, if not, maybe the pod race. But outside right. of that, uh, it is definitely a sequence where there's stunts, especially compared to kind of the original trilogy's uh, lightsaber battles. There's more flipping and kind of bouncing around, but not in a totally digital like doing eight somersaults kind of way it seems like a very standard uh sort of realistic fight with the tension building with the gates closing and things like that what else about kind of that sequence stands out to you i mean like you said the physicality of it right because story-wise it's we're we're seeing jedi knights in their prime right mm-hmm which sort of accounts for why the lightsaber battles in the original trilogy are actually like kind of so-so. Yeah, um, you have an, you have a, a washed up uh, Obi-Wan and then right. an old Darth Vader in every single uh, one of the fights. Right, or an inexperienced Luke, you yeah. know? Um, so I think that's a big part of it. There's also all kinds of weird minutiae about it too. Like uh, in the original movies, Lucas had a rule where you could only hold the lightsaber with two hands, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, which I believe is like a samurai thing. Right. Um, that he was very adamant about like hanging on to that idea. And then in the prequels, he just like throws caution to the wind, uh, hires these like amazing stunt choreographers, and he even makes a, a lightsaber hilt smaller mm-hmm. so that they're easier to Manage. swing around. Right. Yeah. And that just, it just makes the fights more acrobatic. I mean, I think you were alluding to the Yoda fight in Attack of the Clones. Right. With Dooku. Um, Lots of people, that, I, that one's more criticized. I, I would say the, of the lightsaber battles in the prequels, the Darth Maul and then the uh, Mustafar final battle between Obi-Wan and Anakin are pretty universally held up as great lightsaber battles. And they're the standouts, and probably Attack of the Clones is a little bit lesser. The Dooku battle in that is probably less revered than the other two. I mean, it definitely did throw me for a loop the first time I saw it, mm-hmm. but I, I just know anecdotally that like a lot of people got a huge thrill out of that. And right. there is a certain number of fans that wanted to see Yoda be a badass, even right. though he's like this goofy... Uh, weird wisecracking Muppet in the originals. And I think it delivers on that level. I mean, how else are you going to visualize Yoda fighting? Right. 
especially if, if you especially yeah. in the context of him being like the main like the main jedi like right he's the yeah, powerful and he's... leader and you can't have him just like sliding around on the ground and the guy cutting down just like yeah just going for the achilles tendon just like trying yeah. to like hammer him like hammering him like a nail with his lightsaber right and yeah like you said the mustafar fight i think is a, an incredible piece of action um and the stakes are so enormously high mm-hmm. and you know one element of this conversation that i might as well bring up now is uh there's a, a generational context around these movies right um and you and i are on the same age so we you know phantom menace was probably geared towards kids like a couple years younger than us at right the time it came out. For, for context uh we're like 30 in the 30s for those who yeah. are unfamiliar early 30s early 30s um, right so i think we were just like a little bit slightly too old for phantom menace doesn't mean i didn't like it when right. it came out but um no went to the midnight premiere had a had a lightsaber in hand the whole thing yeah uh, and like we grew up with the uh, the subsequent other uh, prequels in like high school, so yeah. like they're, they're kind of foundational. What's really interesting to me, and this is going to sound like a tangent at first, but when I go on TikTok, mm-hmm. their creepy algorithm somehow figured out that I like Star Wars, so a lot of my feed is um, people posting about Star Wars, but. Nine times out of ten, it's the prequel trilogy and not the sequel trilogy. And more often than not, it's people even younger than us. It's like Gen Z. Right. Um, so I wonder if that's, I mean, did the, those people even see the films in theaters? Or do they just not have the context of the originals at all? So there's no like, right. It's. It, I mean, that's part of it is there's, there's definitely, we are not of the generation, but there are people that probably the first Star Wars movies they saw they're just a little bit younger than us. And the first Star Wars movies they saw were the prequel movies. So it's right. always, you know, it's like the same thing with, you know, getting into a band at a certain album. You Oftentimes the first album that you get into them is what you like the most because it holds those like fondest memories and was more of that nostalgic part of your childhood. Also just uh, going off your TikTok point that the even some of the things that people don't like about the prequel trilogy are immensely more memeable than yes oh yes uh, than anything in either of the other two trilogies yeah i mean i'm trying to think of a a big meme to come out of the sequel trilogy i'm sure there's something i'm but sure there's some i mean yeah but it's like nowhere on the level of like baby yoda even right like right. no whereas i see prequel memes all the time all the time uh and a lot of uh i've seen so many different tiktoks this is funny but it's like usually just like a group of young men and they're all reciting the dialogue from the mustafar fight line for line perfect cadence like they must have seen it like 200 times right uh which i can relate to um but i guess more to the point i was trying to make is like even though there's like these generation gaps my impression is that the people that got super riled up about um the sequel trilogy which I'm not here to defend, but right. uh, they seem to be uh, older, right? Uh, right? Like that was generally my sense is that they grew up with the original trilogy. And so they're saying, you know, that's not my Luke, right. et cetera. Whereas we fall into that weird gap where like, I don't know about you, but I saw the special editions in theaters. Yep. 
Um, prior to that, I'd seen the unspecial editions uh, on VHS back when those back when those existed still. Right. Yeah. They like remastered it, I guess, but it was otherwise despecialized. Uh, mm -hmm. It was it was virgin. And then I read like Star Wars Insider every month. Yeah. Uh, growing up. So like I, you know, I had all the context for the original movies and, uh, you know, I knew how important they were and influential through my parents and, you know, I don't know, watching AFI or whatever. But despite knowing how good the original movies were, I was still able to enjoy the prequels when they came out. Right. Right. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, I will also say, since we were talking about the Mustafar battle, that that also definitely of the, at least of the prequel trilogies, that has the most emotion uh, packed into the lightsaber battle. There's kind of the most storytelling, I think, going on there. Um, and also, arguably, maybe the best acting in the prequels is just the frustration from Obi-Wan, from Ewan McGregor, during that battle oh, and yeah. just the like, Absolutely. pain yeah. that he's feeling having to even be in this battle. Is there anything else you want to say about the prequel lightsaber battles before we um, dip I guess into the, only the other thing, sequels? Yeah. The only other thing I would say is um, uh, if anyone's curious to go check out, it's, I'm sure it's still on YouTube, but like Dave Filoni, who is um, the showrunner on the Clone Wars and uh, the Mandalorian, he has this whole spiel about the Darth Maul fight um, in Phantom Menace. That's really compelling and is, is sort of provides this context about like how that's basically setting up the whole, everything's at stake in that fight. Right. Right. And we'll get to the music, but it's called the duel of the fates. Right. Right. Well, I was, I was avoiding that point cause I, I knew okay. that that was a thing, but yes, a key to the, the first, uh, the Darth Maul battle is that the music is epic in a very meaningful way. But uh, yes. But yeah. Anyway, Dave Filoni makes a great point about um, the the exact nature of the fates that are at stake, and how it, you know it's arguably one of the most important scenes in the whole thing. Because imagine if Qui Gon lives, Anakin's path is completely different. Right. Instead, he's you know Obi Wan's forced into uh, an apprenticeship when he's not ready to be a master. Right. So. Even you if know, yeah, even if you've switched the two roles, if Obi Wan's the one struck down and Qui Gon survives, that's still probably a more stable path for Anakin. Yeah, it's just a it's a more compelling backstory to the Obi Wan thing than I even thought uh, than I would have come up with. Right, you know, you get barely anything in the original movies. Just like, uh, yeah, we used to know each other. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's always it's always a thing of like. How much of the Star Wars, the original trilogy, was all planned out and how much was written kind of as it went along from, you know, Princess Leia oh, we'll, Kiss. We'll get, we'll get to it. Everything else. But, uh, and then, uh, so the counter, uh, I think that the lightsaber battles in the prequels are very good too. Uh, the counter would be that these, there are some good lightsaber battles in the sequel trilogy. I would say... Rise of Skywalker does not have any, um, nope. which even not even any on par with Attack of the Clones, which is the weakest of the prequel trilogy in terms of lightsaber battles. And then there's basically two great lightsaber battles in the sequel trilogy, uh, or depending on how you vary, 
but the Finn and Ray in the snow in the first film is uh, a really compelling, just first off, visually, it's kind of darker and the lightsabers are doing kind of in an Empire Strikes Back way, doing some of the like illumination of the scene. And it's an interesting dynamic because at first Finn's just fighting as a non-Jedi, just kind of going out there with brute force and Kylo Ren's kind of toying with him. And then Ray, the storytelling within the scene is pretty compelling because it's Ray kind of figuring out, oh, crap, I have, I'm actually able to stand up to this and have this inherent connection to the force or whatever she thinks it is at the time. Uh, thoughts on that, on that sequence? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think you're singling out the two, um, lightsaber battles of the sequel trilogy that I would also say are, are quite good. Yeah. I guess I haven't said the second one, but the second one is obviously the battle in Snoke's chamber where it's, yeah. uh, Ray and, uh, Kylo teaming up, which is, I, I would say visually it's the best lightsaber battle, even though it's not technically a like one-on-one lightsaber battle, but just watching that scene, it's got the most like over like visual style to the lightsaber battle, in my opinion. Right. It's, I think it's the first time there's slow motion. In, well, no, there's a little bit in empire, but it's very deliberate slow motion in that sequence, which is an interesting choice. And then, um, you know, I've seen some criticisms of the uh, fight choreo from professionals in that world, but I didn't notice it, you know? Uh, yeah. I thought that was a really exciting um, scene. And to your point about the Force Awakens lightsaber battle, um, and particularly uh, 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 on the point of the illumination of the lightsabers, which I agree is like very visually compelling. I guess this, the sequels have kind of an unfair advantage because prior to that point, for whatever reason, you'd think it would be easy, but technologically, they weren't able to have prop lightsabers that actually illuminated. So it was never a real life lighting source, mm-hmm. which is why in that Dooku fight, his red lightsaber doesn't illuminate him, but Yoda's green lightsaber does illuminate him because both are CG elements. Right. So yeah, there's definitely advantages. Just, yeah. I mean, if, if it wasn't for the prequel trilogy, the sequel trilogy, a lot of the effects would just be non-existent. Um, so I think that covers lightsaber battles. Do you want to move on to point number, ranked number four on your list? Yeah. Um, so this would be cinematic innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of t- dovetails to what we were talking about. Right. And I only rank that so low just because it's... Uh, maybe not very sexy for many people, but I think it's it's hard to overstate just how important the prequels are in terms of moving the medium forward. I mean, you already mentioned Jar Jar, which is a huge landmark. Right. People people um, don't, I, I think now people don't appreciate it because we're so used to CGI characters, but like that right. was something that didn't exist. And like there, there had been CGI characters before, but it was like popped into a screen, not like, a character significant to to the film right and then like another thing is um a lot of the people that were hot on the sequels not on the prequels would be like oh there's so much practical they brought practical effects back uh, mm-hmm. for the sequels uh when they used just as much if not way more cgi than the prequels did 
And, and also there's a lot of visual effects in the prequels that people assume is CGI, but is actually miniature work or props or whatever. Right. And again, this is all on YouTube. Like it's not a mystery. Um, but the other huge thing that I think is maybe under discussed is that uh, Attack of the Clones is the first film to ever shoot entirely on digital. And it's the reason that we have uh, digital projection in theaters is because Lucas demanded it. And it's also part of why that movie doesn't always look so great. Um, it's, it's the, it's the first step in the door and, uh, exactly. It's it's not, it's it's not, it's a little unstable step. Yeah. And it's like, I think it's only 1080p and like, you know, whatever it is, like the ratio of the color amount of color to the pixels or whatever, it was just not there yet. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but George was like, fuck it, I'll do it. You know, uh, which is kind of his MO, his whole career. Like, when people talk shit on George Lucas, I get really pissed off because they don't realize that this man brought us uh, Lucasfilm, Industrial Light and Magic, THX, and Pixar. Right. You know, like, and if you don't have Industrial Light and Magic, like, the next 40 years of movies are different, right? Like, right. it's you don't, unbelievable. I mean, what... it, it, it trend, people just think of it often in the Star Wars terms, but, like, you wouldn't have the Marvel movies in the same sense that, you know, without the, cause they're more CGI heavy than anything. And also, you know, the, people, you know, can criticize the fights in star Wars or, you know, lightsaber battles, but they're not all CGI. There's just the, there's much more practicality right. in that than Iron Man fighting Ultron or whatever. <laughs> totally. And, uh, I mean, to bring it back even further, like, uh, American Graffiti uh, yep. is the first movie to have a completely diegetic soundtrack. Right. So, like, the only music in that movie is music that's being played on car stereos. And you don't really notice it, but you take it for granted. If you think about it in context of cinema history, it's like, oh, this guy was, like, just thinking ahead, like, the whole time. Right. Um, and I think that's a big part of, of the prequels. I mean, I, I don't know how much innovation there is, per se, in Revenge of the Sith. But they definitely refined the digital photography. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that movie is definitely the most visually arresting of all three. And I, I mean, just... also, I mean, part of that, I think it's also the the medium of film kind of lends it to not taking those like digital things more seriously. Like if a musician does something where it's like the mountain goats starting off as just like tape recording that you record, he recorded into his boombox and like recorded right. that. It's just like, oh, that's an interesting artistic choice or. You know, we're only recording this naturally or only recording it live or things like that. Or artists working in like visual art mediums kind of innovation is given much more credence, even if the final product isn't the most compelling thing. And in film, if you don't like the story, you might not pay attention to the eight innovations that are going to all films after it are going to take from. Right. I mean, like, wouldn't you say, like, probably 90% of movies are shot digitally now? Yeah. Um, so I think that's a, it's an important landmark. Part of some of the criticism of the prequels can be tied to that uh, innovation. Specifically, the uh, acting is mm. often, I don't think people give enough credit for, like, these are the first people to, like, do all these scenes blue and green screen 
and just right. they're not actually they're like learning it's basically they're pi- the actors themselves are uh kind of creating pioneers in their own thing just like learning how to act like you're on some faraway world when you're in this studio and then subsequently like actors in marvel movies and things like that have learned how to do it uh right but it it isn't it wasn't easy uh like roger ebert in the his attack of the clones review which is the one he didn't like said quote there is a certain lifelessness in some of the acting perhaps because the actors were often filmed in front of blue screens so their environments could be added later by computer actors speak more slowly than they might flatly factually formally as if reciting sometimes this reflects the ponderous load of the mythology they represent at times it simply shows that what they have to say is banal episode two attack of the clones is a technological exercise that lacks juice and delight the title is more appropriate than it should be so uh, yeah Uh, again this is the one ebert didn't like but even he's like yeah i think some of the problem is that they're doing things that they haven't ever done before that it is these technological innovations are subtracting some from other areas because we just don't know how to use these tools fully yet right and like you said it's that it's now become the norm right like you, you see a, a quote-unquote set photo from avengers endgame and it might as well be you know the back lot at uh skywalker ranch done up in, in blue and green or whatever yeah um, and, and 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 another part uh even comparing the prequels to the sequels now this is a biased view because it's george lucas himself talking about this but i uh-huh. uh pulled the quote from um Disney CEO Bob Iger's book about uh, oh. when they when they showed George Lucas The Force Awakens. Uh, this is this is the quote. Uh, just prior to the global release, uh, Kathy uh, Kathleen Kennedy uh, screened The Force Awakens for George. He didn't hide his disappointment. "Quote: There's nothing new," he said. In each of the films in the original trilogy. It was important to him to present new worlds, new stories, new characters, and new technologies. In this one, he said, quote, there aren't enough visual or technological leaps forward. I mean, I agree. Uh, Yeah, a few thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, number one, uh, Force Awakens is shot on 35 millimeter, right? I believe so. and and uh, I seem to recall J.J. Abrams making a big stink about that. And I think that that is sort of part and parcel with this overall argument that, like, and this is similar to, like, what you were saying with musicians, where they sort of, like, fetishize old recording techniques and stuff, mm-hmm. um, even though it's prohibitively more expensive. But I think there's a certain subsection of cinephiles and apparently of Star Wars fanatics who are like, shoot it on film old school analog you know uh jim henson creature shop type shit like right in camera effects um not realizing that like you know a good portion of that movie cgi and yeah there's just there apart from that there's nothing they're not innovating really at all um or at least not in not in nearly they might be doing little things but it's not nearly as noticeable or impactful yeah i mean there's definitely some like 
pretty uh, astounding creature work and stuff, but it's oh, not yeah. new technology in any kind of way. Right. Um, and then the other thing I just want to point out is that Iger's quote about Lucas, new worlds, new stories, new characters, new technologies. I swear to God, I don't remember it exactly, but I, I think that's like almost verbatim uh, a weird monologue that Lucas gives in one of his Japanese Panavision commercials. <laughs> really? Which if, if uh, you have never seen, I highly recommend checking them out. Go to uh, the one in, the one I'm talking about in particular has him in like a wheat field, like waving uh, some wheat around and like palling it up with an Ewok, a stormtrooper, Darth Vader, and they're all acting like they're best friends. It's really weird. Um, there's another one where his face turns into a camera. Uh, they're great. Check out George Lucas's uh, Japanese Panavision commercials. It's a, it's a great recommendation. All right. So I think that covers the cinematic innovation point. So moving on to your third item. Yeah. Um, so as we hopefully get less controversial in these, these <laughs> takes, um, cohesive vision. Yes. Um, I, I would argue this might be the best case, but I will uh, I will cede the floor to you. Sure. Uh, well, the prequels are a tour movies. George wrote and directed all of them. He uh, independently financed all of them. And he had a plan. You know, there is some debate and speculation about how much of the original trilogy was actually planned, even though I know he said, likes to say, like, I had nine movies planned out. Yeah. Um, you know, if you read, like, J.W. Rensler's books or um, on, the, on the original trilogy or do some sleuthing on YouTube, it pretty readily becomes apparent that actually he didn't know exactly where he was going with this. Right. Um, however, with the prequels, he seemed to know exactly where he was going with it. And that's clear once you've seen all three in a row that the stuff that seems pointless or boring in Phantom Menace is actually important runway for things that pay off in the third movie. I'm not saying that they're perfectly cohesive stories. Like, I have no idea what the fuck is going on with uh, Jedi Master Sifidias. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Jedi Master Sifidias is like the guy that uh, ordered the Kimonians to build the clone. Oh, yeah. Yes. But yes. we never see him. We don't know if he's a real person. They don't bring it up if, like, he is real or if he is some Palpatine creation or something. Right. And it would just be so much easier to have it just be like, oh, Palpatine told him to do it. Right. Um, but yeah, instead, that movie gets weirdly convoluted in the middle act. Yes. Even though that's probably my favorite part of it. At least the non Naboo stuff. Um, yeah. But anyway, back to my point. Yeah, it's just it's 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 clear that it's coming from one mind, right? Right. Um, and I think even the people who like the sequels would have a hard time um, arguing that they're not incredibly inconsistent, right? right. Um, I think the Force Awakens, you know, walks in the room, does its thing, which is basically nostalgia porn, but does it very effectively introduces some nice new characters yeah even though they're incredibly thinly sketched uh, right. a lot of them um I, yeah i think i think the best thing about the force awakens just like when when i watched it the first time was definitely like oh this is good groundwork like you are laying yeah. a good i'm excited for the next movie because i'm excited to see where this goes uh more than anything and then on rewatches it's like Oh, I enjoy hanging out with these characters. Like, and yeah. just I enjoy Finn and uh, Ray's chemistry, and 
then and then right. the next movies come um yeah and i think i was thinking about this earlier today actually i think weirdly and i don't see this discussed that often but i think poe dameron is like the perfect example of how um sort of schizophrenic those movies are because mm-hmm. in the first one you get a little bit of him then he seemingly dies and magically comes back out of nowhere um because he didn't plan that uh but i guess the idea with him is that he's like a han solo type type yes. um and we know he's a good pilot and that's it right um and that he's got good chemistry with finn so then in the second movie ryan johnson who i think made a lot of great choices that's obviously the best of the sequels mm-hmm. um he has to try and figure out what to do with that character and his solution is to make him an asshole who doesn't trust women. It's really weird, right? Yeah. Um, but I mean, I guess it's so that he has like a character journey this time in which he's humbled by the end and they do trust him with, I guess, becoming a leader in the resistance. Right. But then we meet him in Rise of Skywalker and he's not really a leader in the resistance and there's been no growth or maturation at all. And then we find out this whole time that he used to be a drug dealer. Like it's bizarre. (laughs) It's a very weird, it's his path is incredibly strange and you know, yeah, it's, it's just emblematic of how little planning went into this. Right. Yeah. Which I know is a very common complaint, but they clearly were making it up as they went along. And right. uh, There clearly was not communication between, the, the 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 point that I like to kind of draw when talking about the cohesive vision is looking at how since they're both were both Disney franchises at the time, how the Marvel Cinematic Universe played out compared to the Star Wars trilogy, uh, which even like I am not a fan of uh, Infinity War, really uh, the penultimate Marvel uh, kind of big yeah. installment. Hey. Uh, I agree. I think it's one of the weaker ones, actually. But I think Endgame is kind of masterfully, like almost underrated in how masterfully done it is, just in terms of you had this like decade movie series and essentially everything wraps up in a clean and satisfactory manner. I mean, there's like specific time travel things you could pick holes at, but like in general, it kind of goes down super smooth and is a super long movie that doesn't feel super long. And when you compare that to like rise of Skywalker, which just seems like we're abandoning what we had set up because JJ Abrams being like, well, I didn't like what you did with my story in the second movie. So I'm going to just make another, I remade a new hope with force awakens. So now I'm going to try and do something return of the Jedi to wrap this up. (laughs) Right. It's yeah, they're they're weirdly reactionary movies, right? Um, Like Force Awakens is a reaction to dissatisfaction people had with the prequels on just about every level, story wise, aesthetically, blah blah blah. And then the Last Jedi is like, well, I gotta I gotta pivot from that and do something kind of hinky because this is supposed to be the Empire of the trilogy, right? And well, and also just because I I feel like Ryan Johnson was a little bit like well, we just made a movie that had already been made before. So let's see if I can like totally go off and subvert a lot of your expectations right. and everything. Um, and 
personally, I think he may have gone a little too far in that direction. Yeah, um, I mean, there's certainly things that, like, I definitely think he should have taken more of what was set up. Like, you have this second right. movie, and arguably the best part about Force Awakens is Finn and Rey and, like, their bond and how fun it is to be with them. And then it's just like, nah, they're not going to be... And I know Empire Strikes Back did a little bit of, like, kind of did that, where it's like, we're going to separate our main right. character from the I'm other. I'm sure that's what he was thinking, but yeah, it, but doesn't, it just doesn't work it, as well. It doesn't yeah. work as well because you also are separating, you're not even separating like Han and Leia together. You're separating another character you're introducing with right. another, with not the Han character. <laughs> right. And then you get to the end of the movie and you're like, oh wait, Poe has never met Ray. Yeah. Like what? what? And then like, weirdly, is he kind of, flirting with her it's it's weird yeah and everyone's uh, uh interactions are just strange i uh, don't really make sense by the time you get to the third movie um yeah but yeah i think i think really it, you know again it's the george had the auteur vision or even if disney had put in like a kevin feige type for the star who handles right. all the marvel stuff for the star wars and i know kathleen kennedy's there but she did not they didn't they didn't sit down at the start and be like, Okay, what are we trying to do with this? They're like, right. Oh, we're gonna make a movie and then we're like, Oh, this movie's cool and then people didn't like it, so we are going to pivot hard. Just like three hard pivots instead yes. of cohesion. And, and like Yeah, it, not to yeah. Yeah. Good. Not yeah. to get too into the weeds, but it, you know, it's out there if people are interested to find out what the third movie was supposed to be. Uh, initially, uh, which is its own funny sort of um, reactionary moment too, because it was supposed to be um, Colin Trevorrow and his writing partner. Yeah. Uh, and then the, his movie, The Book of Henry, comes out and is so thoroughly dunked on that uh, Lucasfilm was like, get out. We don't want you to make this fucking movie. Um, and also he seemed like uh, goodbye. not, he seems like a not fun dude to deal with. That also, that also. Uh, no, yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, but what is supposedly the synopsis of his movie is out there, and it is so so much better than what we got. Just, just give just, just give us like the brief brief sketch for those who haven't who are unfamiliar. There's no Palpatine. Good start. Um, Good start. Kylo Ren is the bad guy. Mm -hmm. He's the supreme leader. Um, they go back to Coruscant uh, from the prequels. Uh, which is now like a um, Sith stronghold. There's character arcs for all the new principal characters. Um, I can't remember how much Leia is in it, but I imagine she's a pretty big part because um, right. I believe this was written before Carrie Fisher's passing. Right. Um, and I think, and always the idea, right, was that each of the three main leads of the original trilogy would get like a sequel movie that was like, quote unquote, their movie. Um, like the first movie's Hans movie, right? Right. Um, Second Luke's movie's not Luke's even movie, in it. and then the yeah. third movie would be Leia's movie. Right. Which, of course, that yeah, that then that's another probably problem that's maybe a bit of an unfair thing to Rise of Skywalker is just having to deal with Carrie Fisher's passing and uh, totally just that well, yeah. limited everything. And similarly, I know you uh, you shouted it out in your intro, but the Dark Knight Rises, like, don't you? 
I stay up at night wondering what that third Batman movie was originally oh, yeah. going to be. Because it was going to be a joke, another Joker movie. That's like confirmed, yeah. not speculation. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, no question. It was That's gonna one of my Joker, one of my what. favorite sad film what ifs. And I, I I will say going back, the only qualm I might have on the sequels being totally cohesive is I do mm. think that the f- films were somewhat episode two and three were at least a little bit affected by the reaction to Phantom Menace. Specifically, I think Jar Jar probably was going to be a bigger yeah. character in everything because he kind of just absolutely fades out of everything. And uh, <laughs> and I think that's... Well, well he, he casts a very decisive I know, he casts vote. a very important... He plays plot points, but he's in, like... He's probably in the first hour of the Phantom Menace more than he is in the next two films combined. True. That's that that would be the only thing, uh, you know, and that goes. Well, George is fond of saying that the first movie is a, a, a kid's movie. Right. Uh, which it obviously is. But he uh, yeah, he moves away from that pretty quickly. And then you get to the third one and it's like a horror film by the end. So, yeah, and, uh, and heavy, it's in, weird. heavy, more heavily in political intrigue and stuff like that, which uh, yeah. we'll probably touch on soon. Uh, so two points left. Uh, second, yes. number two for you, why the prequel trilogies are superior to the sequel trilogy. I believe you teed me up perfectly there because uh, my next argument would be that um, there is more going on ideologically, philosophically, and politically in the prequels right. than in the sequels, which I can't what are the what, se- what, what do you think what are the they about? Se- what are the, let's just go with this. What are the sequels about? Like, what's the... Like, what are they about? Like, I, I I think I'm attributing this correctly, but that there's a YouTuber named Patrick H. Willems, and I think he's the one who um, said that The Force Awakens is a, just about Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, all the new characters are excited to meet the old characters because it's like, oh, wow, it's Han Solo from Star Wars. Right. Uh, which is like a weird out-of-character reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh I mean, I guess they're like these heroes of the Republic, but also people don't remember what Jedi's are. Like, yeah, there's there's lots of lot there's of lots sense. of the post. Uh, even you know that seeps into like the Mandalorian and stuff, where it's like there's lots of the things that are have been done outside of the movies post the prequels, where it's like, wait, how does nobody know that like Luke Skywalker was a myth? He's like 20 years ago, the guy who like blew up this, yeah, like thing. Right, yeah, it's like I'm pretty sure that would just be like history. Right. It'd I be mean, like, I wait, guess it's like, wait, John F. Kennedy was a real person. He wasn't just like a movie character president that got assassinated. Right. Yeah. I mean, the only explanation that ever satisfied me uh, was that uh, there are no books in Star Wars. But Except then, for that uh, damn Jedi temple out, that burned Yeah, then you find out that there are books. Yeah. And uh, there is a library in Revenge of the Sith. Uh, yeah. I don't know that it contains books. But yeah, it's so weird that like history just sort of stopped happening after Palpatine came to power. Right. Um, yeah. Last Jedi has thematics and ideology going on, but then it that all gets dropped. So yes. Yeah, and, the, and Rise I don't of know Skywalker what Rise of Skywalker is about. Nothing. Yeah. It's about Absolutely. that the four. We're all connected in the Force or something. Uh, yeah, I guess. Like everybody F- finding your finding your tribe. Yeah. Um, know, sacrificing. Even, I don't know. Basically about nothing. Anyway, l- but learning that, to love your abuser. Yeah, yeah, you know that that kind of thing. Um. No, but uh, but prequels, 
are very clearly about the Bush era. Mm-hmm. Um, and weirdly, also now, or the yeah, past four years of our lives. That's the thing. It, um, it was about the Bush era, and then it actually some of it becomes more appropriate of the Trump era. Exactly. Uh, it's really weird and creepy. Um, but I just like that George came out with such a deliberate political point of view um, and smuggled it into movies that he knew were going to be huge hits that everyone in the world was going to see. You know, he's laying down the pipeline in the first movie with the Trade Federation stuff, which people are like, boring. Mm-hmm. But you get older and you're like, wait, is the Phantom Menace is about how capitalism and imperialism suck? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, that's, that's my main thing is when people criticize that, they're like, oh, it's so dumb and like boring. It's like, do you not see how he's laying the seeds that like all this, everything that follows like an emperor rising and this evil this Jedi becoming this evil dude that terrorizes the universe is all because of like stupid bureaucratic shit, seemingly meaningless. Like, Oh, there's a blockade here. And that leads to an entire like religion being eradicated. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, (laughs) Which is how things work in real life. Yeah. 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 And uh, you know, it's all there in the in the first Star Wars. I don't know how much it was discussed at the time, but it's like, you know, I I think we're all in consensus now that it's a Vietnam allegory, right? With some Nazis. Yeah, it's 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 a mashup. But I mean, I think George is on the record. George, my friend George, um, friend is George. on the record as as having said that you know, uh, the Rebel Alliance is the Viet Cong. So I like that he went back to the franchise and decided to tell another like modern or contemporary political allegory in his you know silly sci-fi opera for kids and there's just like none of that in the sequels i mean the most the closest they get i would argue is in um the last jedi where you find out that like um both sides of the fight are dealing with the same arms dealers right it's like okay yeah that's interesting to like throw a little gray on there but apart from that, I don't know. And there's nothing compelling about the First Order to me at all. Right. Um, they're just even less subtle uh, Nazis, basically. Yeah, yeah um, the, the, the scene in the uh, first one where Gleason is just out there giving his uh, Hitler, his Hitler speech. speech. Yeah. Though it's I, like, okay. Yeah. yeah. I, do, I do like the weird one of the weird things and this is kind of a tangent but in the original trilogy how the when they blow up the death star the triumphant like award ceremony is kind of referencing triumph of the will oh yeah for sure and it's just kind of this that's one of the weirder things if you think back on the star wars that it's kind of like the rebels adopting some of these slightly fascistic uh totems in that, like, oh, now we have a little more power, so we're going to do this big, grand hero ceremony. Right. Here's your Iron Cross. Everyone gets one except for Chewie. Yeah. But don't worry, we'll get to that in The Rise well, of Skywalker. He's, he's, he's not of the right, uh, he's not a white person, so why would he get one? It's very, right. very in line with the Nazis. Uh, um. But yeah, the often cited line from the prequels is, uh, and often misremembered, it's it's almost a Mandela effect thing, is when mm-hmm. Palpatine takes control of the Senate and 
you know, uh, so this is how Liberty dies with thunderous applause is Padme's line. And yeah, classic. It's it, almost appropriate because uh, a lot of people misremember have the Mandela effect with the um, Darth Vader line from Empire. Right. Because a lot of people think this one is uh, so this is how democracy dies to thunderous applause, which is not the line, right. but it's close. But I think that maybe just like more speaks to like him driving that point home mm -hmm. pretty clearly in audiences heads right yeah as you know the iraq war is still going on you walk into the theater you watch revenge of the sith maybe she says liberty but you're hearing democracy because right that's what's happening on screen and you know outside the theater right it's the it's the mission accomplished on the uh landing on the helicarrier uh, right not helicarrier i'm not in marvel uh <laughs> aircraft carrier <laughs> right uh but yeah, I, and also I, I, I think it's worth pointing out that like if you go into the like Clone Wars uh, television show and things like that, mm, they get yeah. a lot more into like even more of like the Senate minutia and like the politics of the war. Padme has many, many episodes where she's just trying to be where she's very AOC in a lot of the... Uh, um, oh, yeah. It's a good way of putting it. In yeah. the, a lot of the uh, Clone Wars shows where it's just like this very idealist person who everybody's like, you're young and you don't know what you're talking about. Why are you trying right. to stop us from making more war? Uh, and another bonus of that show is that you get to know the uh, clone troopers, right? So you get yeah. like the sort of the, the grunts, the man on the ground um, point of view of... Uh, George Lucas's Iraq War allegory, um, right. which is admittedly a thing I think is missing from the prequels. Yeah, um, I think I told you once, but like, I actually think if you took Phantom Menace, most of what happens in Clone Wars as a movie, and then Revenge of the Sith, you've got a much better trilogy. Because mm -hmm. um, a lot of what happens in Attack of the Clones actually doesn't end up mattering that much. Right. Uh, it's it's a it's a lot of uh, moving. It's around. a love story, and like, right. and also. Turns out we have these clones. Um, is basically yeah. All that there, happens I, I think substance. I think that probably is one of the flaws of the prequel trilogy is that Lucas had. I mean, it, it was partially because of his going back and renumbering system. Uh, right. But if there had been five prequels or even four prequels, you know, if you have the first two movies and then it's two movies of uh the clones and ahsoka tano and anakin being right. a you know being a master and having an apprentice and kind of the dynamics of that and seeing how all that goes it would be it would be a more full storytelling because you kind of get like the clone wars aren't it's weird that it's like a the trilogy's sort of focused on the clone wars and doesn't actually focus between, on the clone wars yeah it happens between movies right it's just like uh, oh yeah there was this big war in star wars but we're not going to focus on the war i mean that might have just been a purely economic decision yeah. on the lucas's behalf uh knowing him uh and his reputation anyway that that seems likely but yeah it's strange that like the clone wars happen entirely off screen right um, but that's that's kind of diverting yeah. from yeah diverting from the politics point, which is these movies actually have a political backbone and yeah uh, they got something, something on their minds yeah yeah if you cut if you cut it down uh, you can make probably like a one movie like sort of political thriller 
it's like in there yeah well and uh hasn't the uh, hasn't Topher grace of all people actually done that i think he he re-edited i forget what he re-edited he, I think I, I he think re-edited he, he, definitely uh, the phantom menace and or no i think a, he I think he made all three into one movie okay um and you know it's impossible to see unless like you go to one of his private screenings or whatever but right. i i've always been curious to know like what that movie is right um because there's definitely stuff you could cut out yeah uh, I, I i think i remember you know reading and hearing about it that it's like oh there's like no jar jar and like you get basically to you know the second movie i think hmm. within very quickly you you cut out a lot of the, okay. cut out a lot of the phantom menace i think um just interesting it. i think it's more action points but i'm again i haven't seen it it's it's not a myth but it's sort of a myth so right yeah before i get to my final yes. point um i did want to say something about the acting um which i believe uh, you were also pointing out was heavily criticized when these movies came out um and i'm not going to argue that everyone is doing a great job in these movies no. but um it helps to understand what George Lucas wanted out of them, mm -hmm. which was not humanistic, realist performances. He's going for this very arch kind of heightened 30s serial movie thing. Right. Um, it's very Flash Gordon. The, right. The, lo it, the love story is very like intentionally soap opera, melodramatic. Precisely. Um, so you combine that with a, his like, um, notoriously um lackluster direction of actors right well by which i mean he he you know the famous anecdote about the first star wars movie was that he would just his only direction was uh faster with more emphasis right right and that was like you know you're not going to get into it with him about your character's motivation um that's not how george works and then the third element is his script which does have this like crazy dialogue that it's not things a real human person or alien would say the other anecdote about that being it was either harrison ford or carrie fisher said like um you can write this shit george but he can't say it um right. and uh, you know if you've like i have done a deep dive on on the original star wars aka a new hope that script and you can see it in like the audition footage for um the various roles and stuff or um even the um the initial crawl um the initial opening crawl right. uh, before before it was uh, rewritten by an uncredited brian de palma that script was even more bananas nonsense cuckoo town like weird uh, so I, I i think all of those things sort of come together in in the prequels and you sometimes get these um less satisfying performances although i will say People are mean to Dogpile and Jake Lloyd. I think he's perfectly fine. He's a kid. Um, yeah, he's a kid. He's a kid, um, again, acting in a form where even the adult actors are not acting well. <laughs> right. I mean, it's even more impressive uh, right. given that. Um, I think Neeson's good. Um, I think I Neeson's think, good uh, partially because he just kind of like doesn't give a, a fuck. He's like, ugh. Like, right. So That's like the vibe of the character, too. Right, right? exactly. It's, so it works. The dude was the Jedi Master. Yeah. He's the um, jaded one. Yeah. Uh, McGregor's fantastic. Yeah. McGregor's definitely like, I think, especially as the movies go along, he's just, with the exception of maybe Palpatine, just kind of like oh, yeah. acting circles around people. 
Um, yeah. Especially the people that he has to do the most scenes with. Um, Ian McDermott's great. Yeah. Natalie Portman's doing the best she can with what she has. Samuel Jackson's having fun. Yeah. Um, Portman's the one that really gets me. I feel like she's just, but also like it was at a weird time in her career where she was like, very weird. Uh, I think this is like while she's like going to, while she's going to college at, while she's at Harvard, I think. Right. And then she's like a young, hot actress in the buzzy sense, but not, not fully like diving into anything. Like she was sort of like this darling that could be in, the next like any oscar thing but then was like kind of tied up in this thing and school for so long and it took her some time to like recover from that it's like how people get caught in the marvel uh right pool where it's just like oh you're gonna be doing those for a while and nothing else so yeah i'll see you when i see you um and i still haven't gotten to my final point but (laughs) i think I, i basically just reminded myself that i do think acting could actually be an argument in favor of the prequels because hmm. no one's like bad in the sequels um, no no but i think few of them are like superlatively good right. on on a ewan mcgregor level right i think it's pretty uh inarguable that the the two leads are both fantastic daisy ridley and uh adam driver right uh, and then everyone else is just like pretty good yeah i and again it's partially like a lot of it like what is Boyega is supposed character? to do with like right. Finn? Yeah, exactly. Like um, what? Apart you... from just be be fun and engaging, right? And, and charming is like think... all that's being asked of you, right? And so that's all you're gonna give. Um, oh, and I will say Mark Hamill. I think actually is. Oh, Mark! I think Mark Hamill is great. <laughs> like yeah. I would have been okay with him, like possibly getting like a best supporting actor not for that, just because I don't think people realize totally. how difficult it is to go back to a character after that long. Like, I feel like the dude partially like when I'm thinking of like acting awards, it's like the degree of difficulty of something and to just like give this, go this character. And I know that there's been lots of talk about how they did like people, the actors didn't even like the movie uh, or didn't like the direction of characters. But I think that his character direction in that movie is, really compelling and interesting yep. and would actually be what like Luke Skywalker would be doing at the time, not being this like hero forever that he, somebody right. would get jaded and angry. And apparently, apparently what Lucas wanted to do with the character anyway, if, if he'd had control of it. So yeah, but final point, final point. Sorry. I think this one is, is uh, the least controversial by, by a country mile. The music in the prequels is way better than the music in the sequels. The scoring is pretty good. I mean, it's not like the the sequels are bad, but because no, it's all John uh, Williams and this John Williams right. guy, it's pretty good. It's pretty it's not bad. It's pretty I, good. I, he's got a lot of Oscar nominations. I've heard. But um, I mean, you, you kind of just start with you start with Duel of the Fates, and you, you can start it. the conversation there. Uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna do a few seconds of that because Hell let's yeah. duel the fates and why not?
<laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's that's a taste of it. But I remember at the time thinking that it was it's such a good piece of music and so epic that I thought it was something that I had already known. Like I thought it was some like classical work that had been repurposed for it. I didn't even, uh, you know, because again, it was came out when I was relatively young. And so I did like know a lot better. It's just so perfect for that whole sequence in The Phantom Menace. It's awesome. And then when they, they, they bring it back for the Mustafar fight, and they, but they fold in Anakin's theme with it. Right. Uh, and it's so satisfying and epic. It really, you know, um, closes the circle on, on, on uh, the whole prequel trilogy. Yeah, here, I'll, I'll play, I'll really quickly play a snippet of oh, the do. Anakin's theme from Revenge of the Sith for, so that people can have context for that too. So yeah, it uh, it also has a fairly epic quality to it, uh, building and yeah, building. And, and... Um, I mean, both heavily feature uh, choirs, right? Yeah. Um, uh, very prominently, uh, yep. and that had not appeared in Star Wars music until the Phantom Menace. And I think for a franchise that is so um, beholden to uh, late motifs, anything innovative is really surprising and cool. And you get that in the prequel scores. I didn't get any of that in the sequel scores. Right. Um, that having been said, and I can see you've got it pulled up, there are two pieces of score work in the sequels that I think are all timers, and that would be Ray's theme and Kylo's theme. Right. I'll play um, a little bit of those. Just uh, this is a Ray's theme. Uh, I mean, John Williams. Nobody's really close to his level on motifs. Like, right. You know going all the way back to Jaws and, yep. you know, and one of the things he does is take things from other characters because Star Wars is so long now, uh, you know, he will take things from his other motifs in prior movies, including like the reverse in the prequels in, you know, incorporating parts of the Imperial March here and there or things like that. Uh, but, you know, or doing aspects of different characters, like almost parallels to light motifs uh, in the uh, sequel trilogy, but here's a little bit of race theme.
you can get kind of that dreamer quality of Ray's character. Yeah, it was like, yeah, it reminded me of like Tchaikovsky this, on this listen just now. Um, it's a really cool piece of score. Uh, mm. And then great, they, great melody. Yeah, and the counter is the darker, obviously. Uh, Kylo bum, Ren. Bum, bum, yeah. <laughs> Here's a little bit of that, not uh, sung by Jason. dramatic and moody um right yeah they're very well done but i again john williams aces motifs throughout everything but there's just more there's more interesting things going on musically in uh the prequels i mean a lot of the sequels score is reprises Right. right um and that's deliberate but it's just less interesting to me um and i think on you know, Duel of the Fates alone puts the music of the prequels over yeah. the top. Like, that might be, and I'm sure it uh, fluctuates generationally, but the third most iconic or recognizable piece of Star Wars music? Probably. I mean, it's definitely, uh, I would probably say Imperial the March five. first, or is the actual Star I, Wars theme first, do you think? I would say March or Fanfare or the Force theme. Um, and yeah. then Duel of the Fates, and then maybe Leia's theme. Probably, but that's probably that's probably the top five in in some order. And I think yeah. you know the top three, I think, are pretty pretty well locked in in some in some order. And then it's yeah, Fates. I think a pretty clear four uh, or three. I guess three could be you, you could you could argue three. Um, but yeah, that's all I'm saying is you could argue. Right. But yeah. It's in, it's in the top five for sure. And there's and nothing there's nothing that cracks the top five from the sequel trilogy. You no. can't. You, there's really not an argument to make. Like we just played two of the best, and if you asked me to recite the I'm melodies not, yeah. right now, I would be like, I cannot. And I've seen all those movies plenty of times. It's not like I only watched. Uh, I didn't like Rise of Skywalker. I still saw it like three times opening weekend. <laughs> Um, I just had to make heads or tails. Of exactly. It. I was but, like, uh, yeah. it was mainly, do I not like this movie at all? Is this my least favorite star Wars movie? Um, I don't, uh, well, is it, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I feel is. like, I, I feel like attack of the clones is a worse movie, but it, but rise of Skywalker, I think is my least favorite because it's in theory, the end of this saga and it just drops the ball. So completely, and Attack of the Clones, even if I don't like it, is at least moving the ball forward. Um, right. It's at least like, I, I if you just tell me the plot, like, points of it, 
And if you just told me like it, only two of the movies exist and you just told me the plot points like of attack of the clones that connected it, I'd be like, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And the rise of Skywalker doesn't make sense. I was thinking about this earlier today and I was trying to like, do any of the supporting characters even get uh leitmotifs? Yeah. If they do, like, I have no idea. Like, like what's Finn's theme? You know, I'm sure I'm sh- I'm sure there is one, uh, but I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> right. It's yeah. like a shame that you can't. Right. Whereas you take any of the principal cast of the, uh, original movie or the prequels and it's like oh yeah i know i know their theme come on right it's just less memorable and that's kind of your it's your driving point it's your it's your number one point is that one of these has a score that's fantastic and the other uh does not also i i'd be remiss if i didn't say that it is insane that uh to me anyway that the phantom Menace did it win the oscar for best score that year it didn't it did not what the phantom menace i i i'm going to pull this up because i forget because it was Ooh. one of the uh i, I, I want to guess because it's 99 so this it's is 99 like we'll, we'll play a game a it's big, actually a big movie, year it's it's a movie that nobody thinks of and i i I've, it won multiple awards over the phantom menace but i do not i didn't even know about it until uh i looked this up once because i I argue that the Phantom film? Menace could have won multiple Oscars. I think it has a case in the sound and the uh, effects, visual, visual effects. effects. Yeah. So the visual effects, uh, the Matrix won that year, which I okay, can't argue that those are revolutionary. Yeah. But I, again, to your point the earlier. The Red Violin? Uh, yeah, oh, yes, the Red Violin won. What was the other one that... The Red Violin one, which I... I've seen that movie, but I did not even remember it as a 1999 movie. Right. And uh, The Matrix won Best Sound, which, again, isn't that... Uh... The the one that... Also, The Phantom Menace was not up for Best Costume Design. The costume That's design insane. in that movie is amazing. <laughs> there's a whole uh, exhibit yeah, I at... I could have made that argument. Yeah, there's yeah, the, a Amidala whole... alone, it's like... Yeah, there's a whole the exhibit charts. at EMP in Seattle for a while on the costumes of Star Wars and the prequel costumes. Like just seeing that exhibit gives you gave me so much more appreciation for the prequels just like the amount of work that yeah. like went in and thought like how deliberate everything was from color choices to things like that that you don't think about probably because every there's so much CGI that you don't think about the actual practical effects. But yeah, topsy-turvy won best costume design okay year. i mean lindy hemming she's pretty good but no one remembers that movie nobody remembers that movie yeah but like, yeah the wardrobe is outstanding and like when you think about how you uh you're introducing leia's mom right yeah you've got a new space princess how on earth are you going to like top one of the most iconic pop culture characters visually you know with the you know the she's buns got, on the head and the white yeah, little she's dress. Yeah, goofy, goofy hair. The, um, and the slave outfit with Jabba. And, um, right, um, exactly. And then it's like, they just threw the gauntlet down with Amidala. And I, maybe I'm misremembering, but I, I seem to want to say that, like, it was her kind of uh, kabuki look was, like, our first glimpse of her. 
Yeah, and the, the white makeup. It was, it was shot by uh, Anne Leibovitz, right? And it was the cover of Vanity Fair. Am I mistaken? I I don't. I'm not sure on that, but I I, I am. I'm almost positive you're right on the uh, on the first look, and that it would be more shocking if Leibovitz wasn't the one who shot it, considering like how much hype Star Wars had at the the Phantom Menace had at the time and how everything was so right and now she's like permanently associated with it weirdly right yeah like Vanity Fair is always like the first look Star Wars Annie Leibovitz shot the cast but yeah they came out swinging with Amandala and then she has like a bajillion other amazing outfits in those movies right um I think it was maybe Vulture that did a ranking of them um that was a totally fun to read um people forget how iconic Amidala is She's probably like the most recognizable person from those movies, right? Right. Apart from I don't know Watto. Well, I mean, Jar Jar, Jar Jar would yeah. be, but positive that people are like, even if you don't like any of the prequels, you, you can't be them, like her costumes right? were trash. Like, yes. she looked like garbage. Yeah. Though, though, I, looked- I think, yeah, I think the, uh, uh, I think Blank Check brought up how she's a little doge. Uh, Rachel Dolezal in the second movie, but I think that might be part of oh. the digital shooting. Uh, her colors, a li- her skin tone's a little off there, but uh, but There's overall, a lot of things off a little bit in the in that movie, visually yes. speaking. But that's um, again the, a technology point, I think. Yes, and I will I, I will admit one thing when it comes to the costuming is that it makes absolutely no fucking sense that the Jedi's wear what they wear. Um, <laughs> And I get why they do it, because that's what Obi-Wan's wearing um, when we first meet him. Right. But also, this is an old hermit who lives in the desert and is dressed like an old hermit who lives in the desert. Why do the people out... in like Coruscant dress like old hermits in yeah. the desert? And if he's in hiding, then why the fuck is he wearing like his uniform <laughs> Right. when we meet him in A New Hope? like It makes no sense. Um, yeah, there's lots, there's lots of those things in the, you know that you kind of have to explain away in like extra canon or just like, why don't you recognize droids that these two droids that are in everything? How do so many people forget? Like, it's one thing to forget the droid. You don't remember this one dude, but it's just like, they're all in the most important moments of your life. Um, Right. And yeah, Obi-Wan ends up coming out like a prick when you rewatch a new hope, which is kind of fascinating. And I, I, I love where he's like, I'm not even going to pretend I remember you, C-3PO and R2-D2. Um, yeah. That can be my little secret. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, and yeah, it's a, there's there's lots of ways around it. But uh, yeah. So anyway, that was score. <laughs> that, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> as we talked about <laughs> costumes and a million other things. Anyway, uh, so there is Jason's argument why everyone is wrong about the Star Wars prequels and how they are actually superior to the Star Wars sequels. Jason, thanks again for coming on. Is there anything you want to plug or shout out or people should go watch other than like George Lucas commercials, Japanese commercials on uh, YouTube? Uh, Thanks for having me. First of all, this was really fun. Yeah. Um, I talked for much longer than I even assumed I would. Uh, I've got some music available on uh, freebodyculture.bandcamp.com and usf the band.bandcamp.com mm-hmm. um jason makes then, electronic music you should check I it do. out 
yeah apart from that i got i got nothing if anyone wants to give me a job that'd be great yeah i i'm i'm down for that too i would also take uh, a job that's not randomly freelancing things so that's my plug couple thanks uh thanks to peter richards for composing the theme music for this podcast a tribute to weird owl in a sense you can find peter's music at peterrichards.bandcamp.com he has mikey nike stuff albums up there he is also a member of the band dude york which can be found at dudeyork.bandcamp.com the podcast logo uh, that I whipped up uses the background of a drip painting by Eric Skoog, uh, who's a pal of mine. You can go to Eric Troyer Skoog at Instagram if you want to see him post photos of dogs mostly and occasionally drip paintings. And the logo's font is Leatherface by uh, Daniel Zadaronzny. I have not met Daniel. I just talk to him and use the font his fonts can be found at iconan.com that's i-c-o-n-i-a-n.com doing those plugs the first time so that i don't have to do them for future times except for maybe peter because i like peter all right thanks again jason for uh coming on and uh thanks to everyone who's listening uh in theory there will be more episodes to come and remember even if everyone else mocks it Love the art you love.